and welcome to our program, The New Resilient You. My name is Susie Botros and it's my privilege to journey with you across this series. You've joined us at session two as we are on a journey to unpack how you and I can become more resilient in the, in the face of life's challenges and where we can pick ourselves up when life throws curveballs at us that we least expect. And so I'm sure you'd agree that the only predictable thing about life is that life is unpredictable, right? And so together we're going to work out, together we're going to go on this little tour of how you and I can become stronger, more tenacious, bolder and more in charge of our emotions and our responses. And so firstly, what is emotional resilience? You'll see on your screen, the ability to bounce back from life's challenges and avoid becoming a victim to your emotions and circumstances. We all know the feelings that come with, you know, feeling like something's gone wrong, feeling out of control, feeling really devastated on the inside, feeling like we just can't pull ourselves together, like we've just, we don't even know what the whole point of tomorrow is. And we also know the less intrusive feelings that often come as well. Sometimes we have these destabilizing feelings when things haven't even gone wrong, where we just wake up or throughout the day, we sense this fleeting feeling or thought or whatever it might be that has us think, you know what, I just don't feel great. I'm just not, just, yeah, something's amiss. I'm not, I'm not feeling strong or I'm feeling a bit shaken or whatever it might be. So as we journey through the next four sessions, I want to leave you with some tools and some tips that are going to help you work out how to become more resilient in the really big things and also in the everyday things. Because none of us like that nauseating feeling. None of us like to feel like we're out of control. And so... Whether you are a glass half empty person, a glass half full person, whether you're an optimist, a pessimist, a realist or anything in between, please know that resilience building is for you. You don't have to be an optimist to get better at resilience. Of course, it makes it a little bit easier in some areas, but resilience is like a muscle. And it's a muscle that each of us can develop in and become stronger in, much like fitness muscles. All of us are privy to becoming fitter and stronger. The same thing applies to resilience. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we journey through the content because you can do this and you've got a God who is backing you as you go through the journey. I love this quote. Uh, this quote from Peter Scazzaro from his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he says, emotional health and spiritual health are inseparable. It's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I love that because it's so true. In fact, I want to unpack that just a little bit further. In the last session, you would have heard me unpack what we call the discipleship cross. You see, you and I, the whole purpose of Christianity, the whole purpose of why we love Jesus and we follow Jesus is because we want to be like him, right? And so if we want to be like him, there are four key areas that we can be like Jesus because he modelled being perfect in each of these areas. The first one is in his relationship with God. 
But you see, if you and I are not resilient, if we fall over every time something in life goes wrong, big or small, we really can't develop our relationship with God in the way that we we could otherwise or in the way that God intends for us because we can't believe in the promises. We feel defeated. We struggle to work out and to believe that God is actually for us and not against us when we're down and out, right? But the second area where Jesus models his perfect life is in the area that we call inner life. That's who he was behind closed doors. And if you and I want to be like Jesus, then being resilient helps us be like this. Because you see, when we're not resilient, when we're falling over, when we're in a heat, when we just can't get up, then we can't do life's challenges with persistence, with determination. We can't actually do the pressures of life well. But on top of that, it also we also find that we end up with this real niggle and this real temptation for things that, you know, promise instant gratification and quick fixes. And so we become more susceptible to giving in to life's pleasures as well. And that doesn't help us develop an inner life that's like Jesus. But how about in relation to the way that Jesus did relationships with other believers? He was such a role model in that space, despite the relational tension that he too experienced. But you see, when you and I are down and out, we either avoid people because it's too hard, we're not in the mood, we just want to be alone, or we end up finding that we sabotage our relationships because we become too hard to be around. And then finally, the fourth area of the discipleship cross is what we call influence in the world. You see, Jesus was so influential. He impacted everyone. And so if we want to follow his example, we too want to be like that. But if we're down and out, if we're down and we can't get back up and we're dark and we're moody and we're tense and we're confused, we actually don't really function in the space of influence in the way that we ought to. Because one, we think, well, you know, who am I? What credibility do I have? When I get my own life sorted, then maybe I can help other people. But other than that, we just, we know that, you know, when things go wrong and when we're so focused on our own problems and our issues and our own feelings and and, and so forth, we become so inward focused that we actually forget that there's a whole world out there waiting to be discipled and waiting for us to be of influence. And so everything we're covering is on God's radar. It's on the heart of God because it helps you become more like him. Spiritual health and mental health are inseparable. Over the course of these next four sessions, I want to walk you through four keys for emotional resilience. Now, have a look with me at what these keys are. Firstly, we're going to have a look at how we can redefine your values. This will all become clearer to you as we journey through. Secondly, we want to have a look at how we can reprogram your thinking. Thirdly, we're going to look at how we can regulate our emotions And finally, we're going to have a look at how we can readjust our behaviour. And I wanted to show you the link between these four keys. You see, our values, the things that we hold near and dear, and we're going to unpack those further in a moment, they determine and feed into our thinking patterns. Our values feed into our thought life. Our thought life and our thinking feeds into our 
feelings, right, into our emotions. Because what I think has a repercussion, has a result, has an outcome by way of my emotions. So for example, if I uh, think that I'm stupid, then I may feel intimidated around a certain group of people. If I uh, think that people are against me, then I may feel lonely or abandoned. So our thinking feeds into our emotions and our emotions dictate what we do because we think it, we feel it, and then we're like, oh, I need to respond. And so there is a link between each of these. And whilst the link is not, you know, perfectly linear where it just moves from one to the next to the next and they do flow in and out of one another, but I want you to be mindful that your values determine your thinking, your thinking determines your emotions and your emotions cause you to decide your steps or your course of action. So let's unpack redefining our values, which is the only one we're focusing on in this session. Firstly, let's define values. What are values? They are really hard to define because they're sort of intangible. But let's go with this definition. Values are our internalised ideals, standards and benchmarks that influence our decisions motivate our actions and provide the grid by which we evaluate our circumstances. Our values are formed subconsciously and consciously across our entire lifetime. And so it might help you to think of your values as a bit of a GPS system. You know, it helps you work out what to do. It helps you work out what responses you have. What it is, it's an inbuilt database that causes you and I to behave in certain ways, to think in certain ways and so forth our values. They sort of happen underneath the surface. They get collected as we go through life, if you like. Imagine yourself walking through a really long forest and you're collecting bits and pieces along the way. You know, that twig, that stick, that piece of plastic, whatever it is. At the end of that walk, you've collected a lot of things on your journey. Some you don't even remember picking up. That's what happens with our values. Over the course of our lifetime, they come at us through um, many influences, our family, our origin, our experiences, you know, what we observe, so many things form our values. And we end up being, you know, adults with a whole stack of values that we formed over the years. And so the important thing for you and I to remember is this, because we end up with a whole stack of values that we've collected over the course of our lifetime, a lot of them actually sit there in our subconscious mind and we're not even aware that they are causing us to think and behave in certain ways. You know, it may be that you were raised in a family that, you know, um, raised you with the value that uh, going to university is an absolute necessity. It's not even an option. And so, you know, you've grown up with that. You haven't really thought about it very much because you haven't really had the need to. You just went off to university and whatever it is. And But then you began to think about it when one day you grew up, got married, had kids, and one of your own children decided that they weren't going to go to university. And suddenly that value that's been sitting there dormant for decades surfaces and thinks, well, you have to. 
And it's not until you actually stop and assess that value that you decide whether you agree with it or not. And maybe you might think, well, actually, I don't agree with that at all. I'm completely fine with the fact that my child is skilled and gifted in other, uh, in other ways and that they don't need to go to university. But you see, the point is that our values sit there in this memory bank and some of them only surface when they need to. And you know what? Often we don't even address them when they surface. We just go with them. It reminds me of a famous story about uh, a, a young girl who watched her mum make Sunday roast for week in, week out, watch this happen. And uh, one day she said to her mum, hey mum, why do you actually cut the ends off the roast before you put it in the tray? And her mum said, oh, I don't know, actually, my mum's always done it like that. I've never really thought about it. I think it keeps the juices in or I don't know, but let's ask grandma. So they go and ask grandma. And grandma's response is a perfect illustration of how often we can go about doing the same old thing without knowing why. And grandma says, oh, do you guys cut the edge off the beef or off the meat? No, 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 no. I was only doing that because I never had a tray big enough. But yet it's been passed on through, to the, through the generations. And often values have a way of doing that as well. And so you and I want to be able to work out what values are important to us what values do we want to keep and what values do we want to dismiss or redefine? But let me give you a few examples of some other values. Also to illustrate the point that our values are important because they actually are things that are important to us, right? And so if they're important to you, then they factor quite high on the importance scale. And you and I know that anything that factors quite high is going to elicit a passionate response, right? <laughs> if we think it's important, then we actually really, really dig into it. The things that are not important to us, well, who cares about them? And they just go by the wayside and we sort of just know intuitively to let them go. But when it comes to our values, because they are important, they actually drive a response from us. And so let me give you an example of how this might play out. For instance, if you value excellence and you have to do everything with excellence really well, you know, all the way, 100% effort. But let's say you work alongside someone who actually their value is different to yours and their value is about getting the job done. So they go with the principle that says, you know, 85% is good enough. Can you see that because you have a value of excellence, you will find their behaviour quite frustrating because it's different to what you value. Another example might be that you value generosity. And so every time you go out for coffee with someone, you're first to get up there and pay that coffee bill because you value generosity. That value determines what you do and how you behave. But equally, when you don't see that value unfold in others, when you don't see that others replicate the same value as you, can you see how that could also cause you tension? Whilst your value is generosity, there's this little oxymoron going on because if you've got a friend who never suggests to pay for coffee, then eventually you can become frustrated with that. Why? Because it's a value to you. Another example might be that you value positivity. And as a result of that, you're always focused and mindful. And in fact, you're fully engaged with everything I'm saying today because this is more about how you can be that positive person. 
And so one, it determines what you do, but can you actually, again, see how it would frustrate you when others don't demonstrate the same value? And when others come into a room and they're moody and grumpy and they've got this awful vibe, how that could really, really annoy you. You see, that's why understanding and redefining our values is crucially important for our resilience because we have got to decide whether the tension is worth the tension. Is the tension worth the tension? And I want to unpack this beautifully through a piece of scripture in the book of Acts, an exchange between Paul and Barnabas that really helps us have a look at how this whole thing of values can play out and unpack in our world and help you to recognise that it is so important to know what our values are, to dismiss and to leave behind the ones that, you know, we're not keen on anymore. And values can evolve, by the way, over the course of your life. You can gain more insight, more experience, whatever it might be that leads you to decide, you know what, I've carried that value for 20 years, but things have changed and I'm seeing it differently now. And that's okay too. But the important thing is to know what values drive you at each point in time. Be aware of them because they speak into your thinking. They determine how you think. And remember at the start of this session, we said that how you think determines how you feel and how you feel determines what you do. So know what your values are. Here's two men who look like they really knew what their values were. And so let me give you a little bit of a back end before we jump into the scripture. So here we have Paul and Barnabas. Now you probably know who Paul is. Everyone knows who Paul is, right? But not as many people know who Barnabas was. But in actual fact, Barnabas was the man who helped Paul become who Paul became. Barnabas was Paul's mentor. Barnabas was Paul's coach. Barnabas was the guy who actually took Paul out to um, Jerusalem and introduced him to other leaders. Barnabas was the guy who took Paul alongside him and trained him up and coached him for ministry opportunities in places like Derby and Antioch and Iconium and all sorts of places. And so Barnabas was this guy, took Paul under his wing, they went out and they just finished their first ministry journey together their first missionary journey rather. So they'd been on this journey together. They'd done life closely. It was challenging. It was hard. It was, we can read about that in the books, um, in, in the book of Acts. And they did life really, really closely. And then they come home, life gets on with things. And then I want to pick up this piece of scripture, scripture from Acts 15, where they have this conversation about going out on the second missionary journey together. So let's pick it up. Acts 15, verse 36 to 39. It says this, sometime later, remember, later after their first missionary journey, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're going. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So what's happened here? 
is that in their first missionary journey together, they'd taken along Mark, who was also another young guy. Mark went with them, but halfway through that trip, Mark did a runner and came home. He left them in Pamphylia, as the scripture says, and came home without them. We don't know whether they had a conversation about that at the time or what happened, but obviously it didn't create too much tension between Paul and Barnabas because they're now discussing going out together again. But then we read that Barnabas said, okay, well, are we going to do what we did last time and take Mark with us? And Paul says, no, no, of course we're not going to take him with us. He did a runner. He left us last time in Pamphylia and came home. Why would we take him again? That would be ludicrous. Why would we take a a crybaby with us again? And the scripture tells us that they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Wow. Did you catch that? These two men who are in the middle of having a conversation about doing their second missionary journey together, end up disagreeing because they have different values and they have a sharp disagreement and what? They can't resolve it and they part company. They part company. Now, let's not move too quickly from this because they had done their first missionary trip together That was hard. They would have had to debrief. They would have had to know that they had each other's backs. They would have done life so close. In fact, who knows, they may have even shared a bed head to toe, right? They were close. They were mates. They knew that they were alibis. And so when the scripture says that they had a sharp disagreement and parted company, we can't just overlook that. That would have hurt. That would have really challenged their resilience. But you see, what happened here and what unfolds is two people with a set of values that they knew that they knew that they knew that they were sold out to and that they were going to stick by. And you see, the scripture doesn't really tell us why Mark left them, but commentators tell us a few different ideas of why he may have. They suggest that maybe he was really frustrated with Paul because Paul would put himself forward and, um, you know, he, he maybe felt like, commentators tell us, he maybe felt like um, Paul was, you know, stealing the show when really Barnabas was, was his, his man. If it wasn't for Barnabas, Paul would have been nothing. And so maybe Mark was quite frustrated at Paul and decided to leave. Commentators also tell us that maybe he was actually scared because things were going wrong. It was scary territory. It was unpredictable. There were um, things going wrong. There were awful people around. There were some very, very unpredictable and scary situations that would have challenged anyone's resilience. And so some commentators say maybe he was scared. Commentators also tell us that maybe he was just really discouraged because he actually left Paul and Barnabas soon after Acts 13, which is uh, when they were ministering in Cyprus and we're told that their ministry in Cyprus was actually really unfruitful. And so maybe he was discouraged because things weren't happening. Things weren't going on. Things weren't unfolding. The message wasn't spreading. People weren't embracing them and their message in a way maybe that he'd had expected. But whatever it is, we don't really know why he came home. And we don't really know 
what the values of Paul and Barnabas were. We can only guess. But maybe, maybe Paul's values were commitment, reliability, serious work ethic, perhaps. Could be a whole host of things. And so when he was confronted with this situation, do we take Mark again? If he's to assess it against his values, he's decided, no, we won't take him with us. That's not happening. Whereas Barnabas, on the other hand, maybe his value systems were different. Incidentally, do you know that Barnabas wasn't the name that his mum gave him? The, mom, the name his mum gave him was Joseph. He was known as Joseph of Cyprus. But Barnabas was his nickname and it was a nickname that means the son of encouragement. So we know that he was, you know, all about encouragement. He got that as a nickname. It must have been a really profound and prevalent character trait within him. And so maybe his values were all around encouragement. We also know that Barnabas and Mark were cousins. So maybe he had a value around family and loyalty. And that value said, I can't, I can't possibly ditch my cousin. Like, I've got to take him with us. How can I just leave him? Or maybe he had a value for, you know, encouraging and uplifting the next generation because Mark was younger than them. And he was like, hang on, so what that he failed the first time? I've got a value for second chances. We can coach him around this. But whatever it was, Paul and Barnabas disagreed sharply because their values were different. Barnabas took Mark and went on a journey. Paul went on another journey, both in different directions. Now, I want to ask you this question. You see, relational loss no doubt involves grief. And so these guys would have been gutted, so gutted. They would have lost sleep over it some nights. They would have felt the pain of losing a good friend, a good ministry partner. But if it wasn't for their values, if it wasn't that they knew that they knew that they made that decision based on these values that they held tightly on, they would have become so unraveled, I would imagine. But you see, when you and I can step back from a situation and say, I made that decision because it aligned perfectly with my values, then we can decide and make decisions that are in alignment to our values, which makes the tension worth the tension. Because when they were asleep in bed at night and they felt the grief and the pain of losing a friend, instead of saying, Oh, gee, if we could only turn back time, you know, we were so irrational and so stupid and, you know, I, the, you know, my ego got the better of me. You know, that's not resilient building outcomes or conversational dialogue. But to be able to say, you know what, it hurts and it might hurt for a long time, but I made that decision based on these values is a whole other ball game. And so people, for all of you listening today, the first tip for us to be able to develop our resilience is to know our values. Redefine your values because they will give you everything you need to know to decide whether the tension is worth the tension. And I pray that as you unpack your values, as you think of them, as you discuss them with significant people in your world, that you will be able to work out through the grace of God and the insight and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, which values to dismiss, which values to keep and which values need to be redefined so that you can make decisions that enable your resilience.
and ensure that you become more like Jesus in every way. There is no right or wrong for values. It's just what's important for you and what you feel the Holy Spirit is saying you need to pursue. So be encouraged in Jesus' name.